0: This reading is from the series Circles of Time, part two of book two of the Ring of Man, <coughs> set in 17th century Restoration England. But before I begin, I should explain the origin of the silver runic ring. The runes are an alphabet, but the Vikings believe that they foretold the future, with each symbol having a special meaning and a connection to the gods. Ragnar, a Norse Viking warrior, and commander of King Hagen's archers, was taking a family holiday on the Isle of Stord, when the Danes raided. He was killed and the ring torn from his finger. His Spanish wife Teresa was lanced and his daughter Freydis was raped and her prized black Arabian horse stolen. Freydis became a warrior of revenge and returned the ring in a battle on the Isle of Man. The Ring of Man, Book Two of the Sea of Circles of Time Narrated by author David Thomas Kay Part Two The Grammar School, Hawkshead Village, Summer, 1663 The thud echoed around the classroom. Thomas had been spiralling down into a dark bottomless pit, fighting to escape the abyss, when his head crashed down onto the solid oak desk. He lifted his head. His eyes flooded with light. He coughed the sweat from his forehead and looked around the class, embarrassed, hoping that nobody had noticed. The headmaster paused and glanced before continuing his lecture. Remember, Phineas Clayton paused for a dramatic effect, waved his forefingers skyward and prowled across the classroom like a caged tiger. Remember that the Cistercian monks of Furness. Lived according to the rule of Benedicts. They were white tunics and dark scapula as opposed to the dark grey habit of the earlier Benedictine monk. The monks elected the abbot and as ruler of the house they swore allegiance to him, then elected a prior to the monastery's day-to-day issues. 130 years ago the abbot of Furness was the superior lord of the whole district controlling Dalton, Colton and our own parish of Hawkshead. The class were beginning to fidget, hands on knees, fingers tapping out rhythms. The history of the district was a teacher's pet subject, and fortunately for the class, they only suffered once a week. The air was stifling, but Thomas was determined to concentrate. He watched his teacher fiddle with his new spectacles, balance precarious on the bridge of his sweaty nose, constantly lifting them on and off. Thomas was thinking of his cousin Damien and their concealed treasure. At the time, he felt sorry for Mr Clayton, having to wait over a month for his new eyes. He spotted them rested on the Book of Psalms, and the temptation that through too much. But it would have been fatal to return the spectacles, and admit he'd stolen them. Like a magpie, he'd hidden the glasses in their treasure pot in Farmer Smythe's Field. The Book of Psalms was hidden behind his bed in the cottage. He noticed Mr Clayton's new spectacles were secured by a third cord around his neck. The small man lifted them from his nose, mopped the sweat from his brow, and clumsily stuffed the handkerchief back into his pocket. All the windows were wide open, begging for a crosspiece. In the year 1537, the abbot Roger Pelle and the prior Brian Garrett and 28 monks surrendered Abbey to King Henry VIII. And ever since that date, and up until a few years ago, the livery and Lordship of Furness remained with the crown. So what if he has thought, Thomas? It was only the second time he'd been ordered upstairs to mingle with the elite. The first time was a taste of the birch, which remained a painful memory. Today's visit was still a mystery. The headmaster had purposely asked him to attend, but never explained the reason why. Thomas sat on a long bench at the front of the class. With the important students of the grammar school, sons of statesmen, and some perhaps destined for Oxford, others some less distinguished sat on behind bench desks alongside the walls. Thomas felt relaxed after downing his bread and cheese lunch, and the hot summer's day was making him feel drowsy. He imagined the huge empty fireplace on the brick wall, crackling with burning logs, and his eyes glazed over. Thomas snapped his head back, forced his eyelids open and inhaled. There must be a good reason for me being here, he thought. It has to be the symbols. Finnish Clayton had caught Thomas doodling on a slateboard in the lower classroom. The headmaster was relieved in his usher and giving the class a taste of real authority. I'll see you upstairs in my office, Johnson, and make sure. Thomas was already imagining the sting of the birch when the headmaster's voice trailed away, then quickly rose in excitement. Do you know what you're spelling, Johnson? I'm not spelling, sir. You're drawing runes. You must have seen them somewhere. Have you been to Erswick or Oldingham? No, sir. I saw them on my cousin's silver ring, and she wears them as an amulet. Finney's brow followed and was silent for a moment, visibly shocked. But unable to conceal his excitement, his pulse raced and his feet tapped on the wooden floor. I'll, I must see this ring, Thomas. It should be in safe hands. You must, you must bring it to me. Thomas was being addressed by his first name and he could sense trouble. He'd already said too much and needed a way out, but struggled with a lie. I can't, um, I can't bring it to you, sir. Cousin Mary the ring in the lake a long time gone. It was when we were taking the ferry to Long Island. Finnis showed his disappointment. He leaned forward with his eyes closed and his clamped fists thumped the desk. (coughs) Good God that's a tragedy Johnson, a tragedy indeed. Two days had passed since that dueling incident and here he was in the upper classroom with the elite. Thomas straightened and shook his head awake. The droning voice was struggling to penetrate his thoughts, and the teacher was aware of the silence in the room. I can see drooping eyelids, so I'll get to the point of the lesson. How many have you seen Ferns Abbey? Five students raised their hands. He addressed Thomas. How did you find it, Johnson? My father took me, sir. Thomas felt pleased with laughter around the room, and there was a sudden relief of tension in the classroom. I was asking for your opinion, Johnson. Oh, they're just all ruins, sir, and there's no roof. My father told me the roof's lead had been melted down for musket balls. Then I saw some farmers with bollocks hauling away some of the huge sandstones. Thomas had, in fact, begged his father to take him and Damien to see the Abbey. He was fascinated by the stories he'd heard. The monastery was surrounded by mystery. He'd heard ghost tales of a headless monk riding a horse through the ground at night, and of abbots using the old castle on Peel Island to store and ship smuggled goods. There were stories of underground passages and runaway kings. There were rumours that King John's jewels and the Ornford bells were buried under the rubble of the tower. Perhaps we could dig there, thought Thomas. His thoughts were interrupted by the teacher's voice. I am sure you were no more disappointed than many others, Johnson. I saw a ghost, sir. Thomas couldn't stop himself. He stood with his mouth and eyes wide open, waiting for the reaction, wishing that he kept his mouth shut. A murmur travelled around the class, followed by an expectant silence. The headmaster's eyes scanned the classroom and noted his students' immediate attention. Phineas loved being in control. He saw a ghost, Johnson. Pray tell the class of your unusual experience. Thomas looked at the grinning students around him, his head swivelling left and right. He was nervous. His left shoulder and side of his face twitched in unison. It was a bad habit he was often scolded for. He loved telling stories to his family, but taking a class of all students was frightening. They might laugh at me. Do I have to, sir? Phineas leaned his head forward and glared. Yes, you have to, Johnson. And I'm assuming that you don't tell lies. Thomas perceived the threat in his teacher's voice and hesitated. Taking a deep breath, he nervously cleared his throat and began to speak quietly and ponderously in a deep, soft voice. An interruption came from the back of the class, followed by rumblings of discontent. We can't hear, sir! Phineas held up his hand and demanded silence. Speak up, Johnson! or you'll return to the lower classroom. Thomas grew angry. The sign of his silence quickly disappeared, as he narrated in his normal, deep, penetrating voice. Me father took me and my cousin Damien to see the castle on Peel Island, and on the way home, we stopped to explore the abbey grounds. The sky was darkening, and the path home would have been dangerous. So father said we should camp in the outer grounds until daylight. He warned us that the Abbey is considered sacred at night, and restless spirits from the cemetery have been seen roaming the grounds seeking peace. Your father told you there were ghosts before you even saw one? Are you aware of the power of suggestion? I really saw a ghost, sir, and so did my cousin. We were camped outside the west gate, and I awoke in the middle of the night. I was staring through a full moon, and all the stars were clear and sparkling, I never even thought of being scared, because it was so peaceful, like being in church. But then, a sudden breeze rustled the trees, and I felt a shoo. I shivered, and put the rug tight around me as listening. Then the breeze stopped as quickly as it started, and a shadow fell over me. Phineas Clayton was both transfixed and amused. The lad had hidden talents, he thought. He looked around the class, at his students leaning forward with their hands between their knees, engrossed. Thomas had risen from his seat and was prowling the cl- classroom, gesturing in the guise of his teacher. Sit down, Johnson! The cloud moaned. The teacher was spoiling the performance. Sorry, sir! Thomas returned to his seat and weaved quickly into his story again, rocking from side to side, reciting... When the shadow fell over me, I shot up to a sitting position and tried to scream, but nothing came out of my mouth. I was terrified. My hands were shaking. This time a chorus bubbled from the back. What was it, Thomas? What happened? Thomas lost concentration. but gulped and composed himself and continued. I saw a monk in white clothing astride a horse. His gaze was fixed on something behind me what happened then? Keep quiet at the back. The horse suddenly reared and his hooves came down and thumped straight through my chest and I felt nothing. Then the monk wheeled his horse and they galloped through the west gate into a mist. It disappeared like a puff of smoke and the air around us became still and eerie and silent as a grave. The class clapped their appreciation and Phineas left his podium to address Thomas. "'You have a vivid imagination and tell a compelling story, Johnson. "'Your bloodline is strong and you've obviously inherited the skills of your ancestors. "'They call the Viking storytellers scolds.' "'I haven't finished yet, sir.' "'Finish gave Thomas a withering look and the class slid to the edge of their seats in anticipation. "'Then please forgive my intrusion, won't you?' Thomas recognised the sarcastic reprimand and apologized. Sorry, sir, but that's only half the story. Please let him finish, sir. Phineas prowled the room, eyeing his students. You should be aware that my duty is to teach, not to entertain. He teased on the discussion, and finally relinquished on the one condition. Regardless of the, day, the time of day, You will stay until the lesson is completed. He stood in front of Thomas, head pushed forward, nose to nose. You have my permission to continue, Johnson. Thomas grinned and began waving his arms around with a sense of drama. I reached across the other side of Fadder and shook Damien. The same voice came from the back. I know him. He's daft. Not the full shilling. Thomas ignored the laughter and defended his cousin. Not as that as some, I know. I told Damien about the ghost and he wouldn't believe me. So I told him to listen and look towards the western gate. But nothing happened for ages. Then just as we were dropping off to sleep, the night wind blew a gust of air and the tree branches swished around like a witch's broom. There was an eerie silence, a silenced silence. And that's when she came. The classroom was still and silent as a corpse, and Phineas looked around his students with a smile. They're so naive, but the lad does have a silver tongue. I must always be persuaded myself. The lady in white had long ghostly hair and was beautiful. She walked around as if searching for something, then turned and followed the way of the monk into the mist of the west gate. She held an amulet cross close to her chest. We sat listening for a while and then decided to wake Father. But he didn't believe us. I don't believe you either, Johnson. Ghosts don't cast shadows. Have you seen one, sir? I have not. I don't believe in ghosts. Then how do you know they don't cast shadows, sir? I know because it's a scientific fact, Johnson. For your insolence, you can stay behind after school and help the usher We'll have no more of this nonsense. He addressed the class again to impress on them his knowledge of the district. Many of you would have heard of ghosts being seen around the abbey, and this is an example of how the stories evolved to become exaggerated. Believe what you see, and remember that's not the same as seeing what you believe. There's a legend in the district of a lady in white and a blue talisman stone. The legend tells of her being murdered for the talisman and that her body is buried in the Abbey Cemetery. Thus, you have the origin of the story you have just heard. Have any of you seen faces in clouds and watched them disperse? There was a positive reaction from the class. Then you have the answer. The mists over the Abbey streams have a similar effect, swirling amongst the moonbeams, preying on the imagination minds of visitors. I saw Jesus in the clouds, sir. Phineas cringed. There's always one in the class. That's another matter, Jennings. And you best ask Vicar Braithwaite for an explanation. But Jennings' question aroused a thought in Thomas. Perhaps it was the Virgin Mary I saw, sir. Phineas glared down at Thomas. Now that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, Johnson. You'll be telling me next that the monkey you saw, that you supposedly saw, was her father. It's time you all learn to distinguish between the stories of fantasy and those of fact. Ghosts are a figment of your imagination. There's a reason for everything. And the sooner you all realise that fact, the better the world will be. Playtime is over, class. It's back to our studies. Phineas unlocked the book cupboard and removed a tone. He sat it down on his desk, opened it at a marker, and carefully damped down the pages with his palms. He scanned the class and cleared his throat to signal the continuation of his lecture. I treasure this book and consider it invaluable in the recording of the district's history. My own interest in Furness Abbey began when I discovered that the founder of our free grammar school, the late Archbishop Edwin Sanders, received his early teachings in the Abbey. Until the time of the dissolution of the Abbey, your ancestors may have been employed by the Furness monks. Many of them could have been lay brothers working the abbey's farms or secular servants living within the walls. Over two hundred lay brothers worked the garages, worked the granges for the abbot. Uh, secular servants were hot. Many of them would have been lay brothers working the abbey's farm or secular servants living within the walls. Over two hundred lay brothers worked the granges for the abbot. Secular servants were housed in the abbey with a separate dining room and dormitories. They were separated from the thirty or so choir monks by a dividing wall. The Cistercian monks also had great engineering and agricultural skills. They ground their own corn and the statesman's corn in the mill at Betzbeck, close to the abbey, and then they stored it in large granaries. The Abbey was the market for all the produce of the fells, selling mountain mutton, raw and wool, smelting iron and even crates of trout from the lakes. Produce was carried to the Abbey and the town of Dalton by barge and packhorse, and the local wheat was delivered by a wagon. Many people argued that they were better cared for under Abbey rule and that they were under the crown. However, just as many people thought otherwise. Hawkeshead entered greatly from the dissolution, and the people grew to accept our freedom of trade. When did you find the book, Mr Clayton? Thomas cringed at the whinging voice of the Tanner's son. The pages of this tome have been transcribed with the permission of the church. The first copy was transcribed from an initial document by Brother Joseph at Ferns Abbey over 400 years ago. With the dissolution threatening, Logipelli rescued tomes from the monastery library, and entrusted them to the church at Tolton where he eventually became a rector. After the dissolution, many dispossessed monks continued to act as parish priests in their own churches. As a past student, our own Bishop Sanders had access to the library, and he was kind enough to transfer tomes to our church. Other tomes were transferred to Rome. This particular copy of the work, recent graduates from school, who now attend Oxford. When not in use, it remains locked safely away and must be handled with care. Our task this year is to follow the duties of the Abbey monks. Select students will transcribe another copy and then translate it back to the original Latin. This was warming to his task. Brother Joseph was a Knights Templar and passionate in his interests of the lay brothers. Many citizens descended from Viking immigrants and still practised inherited customs and beliefs, hundreds of years old. The district was a mixture of both Norse and Saxon. The first author of the tome, a Benedictine monk, worked closely with the Norse immigrants, discussing their mythology. Decades later, in 1240 AD, Cistercian monks transcribed a copy. Brother Joseph signed his name on the final page, and below his name he inscribed Sergeant to the Knights of the Temple. That is most interesting, and I fail to offer an explanation. I cannot find no record of the ruling abbot in this period, and as abbots were only recorded after substantial rule, I suggest that the man had either a short rule or he was deposed. Perhaps the knights killed him, sir. I doubt that very much, Newman. More likely he was voted down and the decision would need to have been unanimous. Finnish cleared his vote <clears throat> and turned to a page of symbols. Like the Greeks and the Romans, the Norse had writing symbols and they were much more than an alphabet. They were called runes with each rune telling a story. The meaning of individual rune become complex in combination with others. There are numerous mystical tales related to the and the Nifnas believe they stored magical power. Many monastic scribes were also excellent artists. Observe the drawings on the Vikings, a fine example of their work. Our district, district abounds in Scandinavian place names, but Norse family names that honored their gods and their goddesses are now disused. What kind of names, sir? names like Thor, the god of thunder and lightning, and Frasier, the goddess of fertility, who was said to be beautiful sorceress, attended by hares who rode in a chariot drawn by cats. Who in this class could believe such a fairy tale? Witches can turn themselves into cats and hares, sir, but they are all old and ugly. Do you know of such a witch, Newman? There's an old witch called Ada in the town Woods, Mr Clayton, and I've heard lots of stories about hares tricking hounds when hunting the fox. Finnish shook his head in disbelief. They're merely tales to amuse the population. When the Norse converted to Christianity, they were baptised with new names, thereby renouncing the old names, which were related to pagan worship. Erewwolf and Thorwolf disappeared at the Doomsday Records. Some five hundred years later, in the early church registers, those heathen names had changed to the likes of Matheson, Stevenson, Nielsen, Jansen, or Johnson, a most common name in North Scandinavia and Iceland. And this brings us back to Thomas Johnson of the lower class, and his local sighting of Nordic runes. Stand up, Johnson, and tell us your age. Thomas was beginning to feel embarrassed. He was the tallest boy in the school and he'd already made an exhibition of himself with storytelling. I'm nearly 15, sir. Phineas nodded and spouted more of his wisdom. Your superior height informs me you are a descendant of the Norse immigrants. Can you recall and draw the runes as you saw? Why are they called runes, sir? In the Norse language, runes mean secret or hidden. There is a hidden meaning in each and every rune. They were believed to be the source of magic and were relied on for protection and guidance in life. Thomas's head was spinning. He thought the runes hold secrets like our treasure pot. We've got a rune pot! I would like you to chart the runes as you've seen, Johnson, and show them to be the class. When you sighted the runes, must remain our secret. Can I tell anyone, sir? No. You must tell no one. Can I just explain the rooms mean secret? if you listen carefully, you may see the significance in my following lecture. Thomas was feeling special. I'll have to tell Mary and Damien and my father. There are four or five symbols there, but I'm not sure of two of them. They will be adequate. I hope your room markings are more truthful than your ghost stories. Thomas chalked the two rooms as best he could remember. One resembled a broken arrow and the other a capital M. He passed the slate to his teacher. Phineas held the chest high for the class to see. You can all copy the symbols down while one of the Latin students joined me to read out Brother Joseph's description of their Norse meaning. According to the monk's interpretation, each one represents a connection to a Norse god. It is written down that the runes were gifted to mankind by Odin, the god of war, and they first hold a future that the Vikings navigated their life by. The runes were believed to be a source of ancient magic, with each symbol holding a truth and in combination with other runes holding the secret of the future. At last, Phineas had the full attention of the class, and as the recorded meanings of the runes were narrated, Thomas' imagination soared. He recognized that the other two on Mary's amulet—Thurisaz was said to be the rune of Thor, the god of thunder and lightning, and Lagos, the rune that holds the power of the tides and waste waterfalls. Iwas was the symbol of the yew tree, and of Yule, the god of archery, who owned a magic finger ring. And Iwas, a horse messenger of the gods, symbolized an unbreakable bond between horse and rider, a bond that would survive from the beginning of a journey until its conclusion. The class were now speaking with animation about the worship of more than one god. It's hard to believe that they worship so many gods there. Finch hooked the thumb of his left hand into his belt, while the middle finger of his right slid the eyeglass up to the bridge of his nose. He was enjoying the attention, and with a posture of authority, he dramatically bent forward to peruse the class. The Vikings brought their beliefs with them and it was perhaps two centuries before they began to see the truth of Christianity. Runic symbols are scattered all over Cumberland, and during the next history lesson I shall inform you of the location. We will also discuss the circle of stones which surround our district. The Vikings are said to have used them for council meetings, sacrificial offerings, and weddings. The Catholic site, Keswick is an excellent example, and I am determined that one day I will examine them during the solstice." He paused, raised his head and perused the class in anticipation of the forthcoming question. Why, sir, the class chorus, and with a supercilious smile, Phineas continued to impact his knowledge. With the rising of the sun during the time of the solstice, there has been signs of strange light phenomena white light bulbs moving slowly over the stones, an interplay between the stone's sacred place and the surrounding landscape. He turned his attention to Thomas, and there has never been a sight of a ghost, Johnson. The class tittered, and the headmaster was pleased with the outcome of his lesson. But he had his own private thoughts on Thomas. He is much as a mischievous bugger, for sure, with his ghost stories. I have to admit, he's both entertaining and intelligent. He waved his arm around in a gesture of conclusion. Now be off with you all. Then, as the class stood to leave, he gave out attention grabbing, intermittent cough. (coughs) That is, without the exception of Johnson. The class trundled from the classroom, animated, discussing Norse gods, ancient beliefs, runic symbols. A mysterious balls of light bouncing around the circle of stones. Church was compulsory for all gram students, and had the local vicar been in the earshot, he would have vigorously disapproved of the pagan chatter. Thomas was told to stay behind and help the usher clean the classrooms. The headmaster explained it was his punishment for being insolent and paying for the privilege of attending the senior class. Thomas was alone sweeping the floor when he heard the first squeak of hinges. Phineas had left in a hurry, and the usher was downstairs, grumbling about the class running late. In his haste, Phineas had been careless about locking the cupboard, and the door swung open with the weight of the key. Thomas was thinking about the ring markings and trying to remember the meanings, so he could tell Mary. She'd not believe me anyhow. The key ring struck the wall, dislodged, and fell to the floor. Thomas' eyes riveted on the bookshelf. It's the will of God, he thought. Thomas stole a future look around him before etching closer. Light shone into the opening and his hand compulsively reached inside. The temptation to explore forbidden territory was irresistible and the history of the Abbey was soon in his grasp. He dropped the book into his lunch sack and was careful to lock the cupboard door before he tiptoed out. I must show Mary and John the meaning of the symbols. Is that you, Johnson? The usher was ready to lock up the schoolhouse. Thomas's heart skipped and his lunch sack was suddenly heavy. I've just finished, sir. Is everything ship-shape up there? I think so. I left the bookcase key in the lock, Johnson. Run upstairs, check that the cupboard is locked, then bring the key down. Yes, Mr Trimble. When Thomas came back down the stairs, though she was standing at the bottom, holding the lunch sack in front of him. "'Is this yours, Johnson?' Thomas could hear his heart thumping, threatening to burst through the walls of his chest, but could only tell the truth. "'It's my lunch sack, sir.' "'It feels like there's half a sheep inside, Johnson. "'A growing boy shouldn't waste food.' "'I don't feel too good, Mr Trimble. "'It was hot up there this afternoon.' "'He knows!' Usher gave Thomas a lingering look. The lad's nervous, he thought. He held out his left hand and Thomas was confused. Wake up, Johnson, and give me the key. Lad, give me the key. Thomas's eyes never wavered from the Usher's face as in one coordinated movement he handed over the key with his right hand and took his sack with his left. He walked from the room, feeling Usher's gaze on the back of his neck. And heard a nominal grunt from the withered old man. Thomas never looked back and shivered with relief as he gulped in the warm evening air. His walk turned to a trot, then burst into a wild run. He squeezed the lunch sack firmly under his arm, and his legs pumped air as he ran rapidly down the slope towards home. <laughs> E